Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hello, this is Simon Brew. I'm the editor of Film Stories magazine and a very warm welcome to a special episode of the Film Stories podcast. Sorry about that. Uh, <clears throat> I literally had to fly in from outer space. Come with me. And I show you how deep the rabbit hole goes. In movies, movies that have stories. That the story just sucks them in. This is just the beginning. We would be honored if you would join us. Hello and a very warm welcome to Film Stories with Simon Brew. I am Simon Brew. As always, that's all you need to know about me. The aim of the podcast, well, I'm here to talk of the stories of film. I talk about development stories, production stories, behind-the-scenes stories, marketing stories, all the bits and bobs that go to make films and film-related things what they are, really. Now, what you've happened upon here is one of my occasional special episodes of Film Stories when I bring in a guest to talk about their work, to talk about their, their work in film and beyond. And in this particular case, I'm delighted to be joined on the podcast by Simon Mayo. Now, notwithstanding the fact that he spent most of the last year due to lockdown broadcasting from uh, a, a very pleasant looking room, in fairness to him, uh, in his house, he's had a productive year that he's continued uh, hosting uh, Kermit Mayo's Film Review, better known to, to lots of us who, who listen avidly to it as Wittertainment. And we're going to be talking about that. There's the TV show Kermit Mayo's Home Entertainment Service that was commissioned and broadcast during lockdown. We're going to talk about that. And also, he's had and his latest book published which at the point this podcast is released is just coming up uh, coming up for its paperback release the book is Knife Edge it's a really good thriller I enjoyed it enormously I like it too because it travels to the West Midlands and there's not enough thrillers taking place in the West Midlands as far as I'm concerned now we're going to get to the conversation I had with Simon the other side of a clip as you'll hear at the start of the conversation I did give him a chance to choose what kind of clip wanted to play he rejected the idea of kicking off with some 80s top of the pops and so we're going with an excerpt from at the time of this podcast being recorded a relatively recent episode of Kermit O'Mayer's film review I've decided uh, to zero in on that moment where he tells the jokes at the start of DVD of the week I love that bit of the show so I'm going to play you a clip of that and we'll come to my conversation with Simon the other side of this I think lockdown is really getting to me <laughs> the good lady ceramicist her indoors came down yesterday morning when I was in the middle of doing a really tricky jigsaw puzzle. Mm-hmm. Doing a jigsaw puzzle, I said. That's nice, dear. What is it? Says she. Well, there's a picture of a tiger on the box, but I'm not really getting anywhere with it, said I. OK, dear, she said. Let's put the Frosties back in the box. <laughs> and I do find that I am... <laughs> Yearning for that's the a, days. That is a, that, that's, that's the best joke we've had so no, far. You wait. You wait. You just, just wait. wait. So that was a clip from some of the work of Simon Mayo, a novelist, broadcaster, joining me now. I haven't picked which clip uh, at the point of the start of the recording of this podcast. I, I wonder if the man himself could could give me a steer on that. Should I, should I be going for a, a bit of 80s Top of the Pops? Should I be going for bit of radio work what what would you prefer oh well uh um i think radio scores over top of the pops in general because nobody nobody cared what you said on top of the pops uh, you know you they told you you had eight seconds or 10 seconds or whatever it was and you all you had to do was to just fill it with words they didn't didn't really care what you said for example one time in fact, it went out again recently. I introduced the wrong band. So there were two bands that had very similar names. One was Modern English and the other was Broken English. And I can't remember which way around it was, but I got it wrong. And I said to the floor manager, I, I introduced the wrong band. He said, it's fine, don't worry. So, <laughs> no one ever said a word. No. 
So I wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't hold too much store by top of the pops. I go for the radio every time. I, I, I will pick a, I will pick a particularly choice radio clip. Okay. That, that's it. Um, I, I, can can I just ascertain because ordinary, I'm a student of your interviewing technique. I've told you this before, and usually it's just a very simple little line in and get you Ooh. to explain and set up what we're going to talk about for the for for the next period of time, but. The rules have all changed, even in your own interviews a little bit, I've noticed. I mean, you, you commended Rafe Fiennes on his radiator, I think, just uh, just a couple of weeks ago. He look, it looked like a hostage video. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I believe those are the words. <laughs> he looked as if being chained to the radiator. Yeah, that's fine. Uh, it's a risky business saying that to Rafe, I think, because it could have gone either way. But <laughs> I, 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 don't I don't know whether the start... I mean, maybe it has. Uh, you know, it's certainly different interviewing Ray finds from well this chair in this spare bedroom than it is you know being in a hotel room but then he probably found it more relaxing as well you know because he was by his favorite radiator so <laughs> did, did you ask him to rank them <laughs> does he have a list um, of... if we'd had time obviously but uh, <laughs> no he you know I could tell he was enjoying because the Ray finds thing is he can do a good interview like for the dig yeah. or he can do a bad interview like for Deathly Hallows yeah um, and the difference is, you know, he was invested in the dig. He loved playing uh, the archaeologist excavator guy. And I don't think he had a lot of time for the frippery of Harry Potter. But still, he was very good as as Voldemort. But yeah, I, th I don't know. I don't know if my interview style has changed. But I mean... Well, where, where where do we? I, I mean, we find you at home then, um, and and you've been at home. If I if I'm listening to Wittertainment correctly, for a very long time, apart from the occasional trip to the recycling centre or something yeah. like that, has that been your last yeah. eleven months or so? No, I mean we were allowed out in the summer, so I managed to have a UK excursion in the summer. That was fine, um, but essentially I've been in this room since since March. There was like a couple of days when. Bauer, who owned the who owned Scala, who I work for, they they said, "Let's work from home. Let's see what it's like." And then I haven't and I haven't come back, you know. So um, I've been in this room since the since middle of March, early March, whenever it was. I, I did originally think I would mark the days off on the on a large piece of paper, you know, like in prison movies where you know one, two, three, four, and then a line through for for the five. I'm glad I didn't because the wall. Uh, would be covered because here we are. I, 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 so, I mean, you, you talked about uh, working from home. Are you are you warming to that at all, or do you just take that as your norm now? Because you're working for different stations as well, and I just wonder if the varying different tech demands of different yeah. stations are. Yeah, I mean, the kid is pretty good now. Um, I think. I think the music. So, I mean, he's been fortuitous. I think playing classical music here has been a very good, the, the Scala format has worked very well for working from home. Yeah. I think because you don't ride the levels, you don't do talk overs, you don't talk over the fade, you know, you don't play loads of jingles. You say, here's a thing that we've done. And now here's another piece of music, stop. And you start the next piece, so that's fine. Uh, Wittertainment has been much more difficult because when you're presenting with someone, you need to really, you pick up on visual clues and there's always a delay. There's always a slight delay. And, and I think that's been more stressful. Also, technically, because it's not reliable, we can't do it as a live show, which means that internet signals are always breaking down. So, you know, a one and a half hour program takes three and a half hours to record, you know. So on the last show that went out was Sam Neill talking about Rams. He wasn't available till half six in the evening because he was in Auckland. So we just, you know, everything just stretches out. So I think the music has been fine. Uh, films have been more difficult. And I start a new show yes. in, a, in about a month. And I've decided that I don't think I can do it from home. And so my plan is to do the new drive time from the studio um which means walking to camden which i'm hoping will be a nice thing um the studios mark goodyear does his morning show there and then he will tidy up and clear up 
And then when I finished, I will tidy up and clear up. So but I won't, you know, we won't be seeing it. It'll be me on my own. There'll be yeah. other people involved in the show, but it'll be me on my own in the studio. So all the rules will be followed and, and everything. But I don't think, I don't think, see, I don't think it's possible to do a pop music show here. I mean, I can do it. It absolutely can be done, but I would rather not because you need to be sitting on the music a bit more than this kit allows me to. So I, I wonder too, um, because because of your extensive experience with radio, particularly with Radio One, I wonder if you've kind of got an inbuilt metronomic sense of timing for if someone says you've got four seconds, you know exactly how much that that requires to fill, whereas I would just bluster my way through it. And I wonder how you've been able to adapt that to wittertainment, having to stretch over so many hours, how to keep the energy and the tempo of a show like that going. I think... Uh... I mean, I'm, I'm used to it now, but now we record it in, you know, we record it in half hour sections. Um, and if I'm in this, if, if Mark and I are in the same room, I can indicate physically that yeah. he needs to wrap up, for example, or there'll be a big clock and I can point at the clock and you're just more aware of the passing of time. But if I'm here and he's there, it's very difficult to have that kind of discipline. So we were, so each half hour is about 27 minutes, but we know that we can go to about 29 and then pair it down to 27. So it means that it's just a slightly different discipline. Um, and it'll be strange to go back doing it live whenever that happens, you know, presumably maybe in the summer, something like that. But um, certainly a live radio sense is not, it's not as important, but I think that, treat that that kind of works quite well in working out has this interview gone on too long yeah has mark been speaking for too long well yes is the answer to that yeah <laughs> uh, and so on because you get that you do have an in a jack reacher style internal clock <laughs> not quite as extravagantly used um as the jack reacher one but you do you do have a sense of the passing of time i think more than you would if you weren't in radio i just, i find i find it runs all the time you know, if I'm listening to Radio 4 or if I'm listening to whatever, you know, you yeah. can you have an internal clock that's running saying this this has gone on too long. I mean, the most extreme example, the day the Queen Mum died, I remember I was in the car listening to Richard Allenson on Radio 2, and it was a Saturday afternoon, and he started to fade, I think it was Elton John, but he started to fade a track in entirely the wrong place, which is very un-Richard Allenson because he's very much... Um, He's a proper DJ, you know, he, he feels and senses the music. And I inst and, and in that half second, I knew that something was wrong. He, he hadn't actually said anything, but the very fact that he was fading the music at the wrong, like in the middle of a verse, for example, yeah. because normally you'd wait for a chorus at least and then go, but he was obviously being told, no, you go now. And so you just have that kind of instinctive sense that something's up, that's all it's 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 a weird thing but you know that i guess does, every job has its equivalent <laughs> does that make you a slightly intolerant film watcher then if you're if you're so conscious of time because i i mean you mentioned once or twice um as most of us do that occasionally you just get the sense that a film overruns um but i just wonder if your level of built-in impatience for that is a little bit starker than ours um i mean maybe i i think with I think film is a different medium I and mean, radio is my medium. I think yeah. if I was a filmmaker, I would, I would rely on my senses a lot more because radio, I kind of sense instinctively and intuitively, I think, but with movies, I can be just as swept up as anyone else can be. Um, and I can be bored senseless after 10 minutes. So I, I don't think that translates to film. I don't think so. I, I, I do think already we're glossing over one of the um, one of the the upsides of, of lockdown um, and desperately trying to find positives in the midst of all of this. Um, and that was if, if there hadn't have been lockdown, I can't imagine you and Mark Kermode would have done a trivia quiz with each other on the Christmas episode of of Wittertainment. And I don't think I've heard two people so unhappy about having to do a feature on the radio to such um, to such quality extent. Was it, I mean, can you talk about some of these innovations that you've been doing with the show? Because it, it struck me, I mean, it's both stayed the same and evolved a lot in a, in a period of a year. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it, I mean, I guess the starting point is it's amazing that we're still on. 
I mean, the the cinema has been affected so badly. I mean, there are still movies coming around by and large, overwhelmingly they're movies that are recorded before yeah. COVID. Um, so we've got that product coming through, but with the cinemas closed, uh, there would be some people, I guess, who'd say, well, what, what have you got a film show on for? And uh, particularly when a big section of the first half hour was the box office top 10. So the review part is fine because the movies are still coming out. They're finding their way you know, onto different platforms. The interviews have become, I mean, that's sort of okay, but the release dates chop and change so much that we think we're gonna do an interview for this particular movie. We do the interview and then the movie shifts by six months and we can't use it. Um, so being a guest booker on a film show is not a good place to be um, because because everyone is all over the place for understandable reasons. But the box office top 10 obviously has to alter because there isn't a box office top 10. So we just had to reinvent part of the program and the novelty ideas, which Simon Paul <laughs> has, we run with and we tolerate because, you know, he's the producer. Um, is tolerate the key word there? Yeah, I think, yes. <laughs> he's got this ridiculous idea at the moment which we're doing where we have to guess which listener has got a list of 10 movies which has been suggested by their... I, I can't even pronounce the title of it properly. I, I mean, it just doesn't work. The whole thing is ridiculous. It also is ridiculous because Mark's winning, so which makes him very keen. But guaranteed, if I ever take the lead, he'll think it's a rubbish idea too. So I mean, hopefully you... we can kill that off. You, you talk about um, about the technical difficulties of, of keeping the show going in, in current times. Um, it, it, I mean, you're, I don't think I'm giving much away by saying you're in London and Mark's down some dirt track somewhere. Something, yeah. I, I mean, are, are we blaming him for that? I mean, ju just to be clear, is it all his fault? Is what his fault? Uh, the, the technical difficulties on no, the show. It's funny, the technical difficulties, they, they've gone in different waves to start with i mean his his wi-fi is notoriously terrible um because as he you know he lives in narnia and they don't really have much wi-fi there so to start with there are a lot of technical problems there um the tech there have been all kinds of we use this thing called clean feed there have been problems with that i've had some broadband issues so, but i just think in the way normal households do it's just mm -hmm. that you don't normally have to record decent quality BBC radio programme on it. So um, I think we've all, whether it be Central or me or Mark, we've all contributed uh, our levels of technical difficulty, I think, to the final product. And, you know, and then you'll be, suddenly someone will freeze or the line will drop or, you know, just when you're, I mean, it's frustrating if you're just having a meeting or just recording an interview like this, but if you're actually putting together a live, timed radio show which has to go out between 2 30 and 4 um it get that can get quite stressful before before all this happened um i i had the had the pleasure of coming and, and going behind the scenes uh for a magazine feature on with yes. and and one of the things that really brought it home uh, brought um what really came home to me when i actually what yes there, there i mean it won't work so well on the podcast but there is the magazine hooray um available from well nowhere at the moment i think i think you sold out actually you sold out that one yeah you did sell out um but one of the things that struck me about that is, is I mean, you talk about the, the, the humanity and the interaction. I mean, the, 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 the sheer honesty in your broadcasting, actually. I mean, little details that you put out on the show about you struggle to forget your computer password. I remember sat there in your office, you walked yeah. in and the first thing you looked, you asked for was you went up to the producer and asked for your computer password. How important is it to put across that kind of genuine feel of, of a bunch of people talking about films? I, I mean, is that natural to you? It feels it. Well, that level of incompetence, uh, <laughs> that level of incompetence certainly comes naturally. Um, it wasn't I, quite where I was going. <laughs> I, think, I think radio is always a slightly exaggerated version of, of yourself. You know, I mean, I think you get over a period of time, you get the measure of, of somebody. I mean, in my experience, you know, the, you know, the, the Chris Evans, John Humphreys, 
Jonathan Ross, Graham Norton, people like that, if you, if you meet them over a cup of tea or a glass of wine, they're not enormously different. But what you see and what you hear is a version of, it's like an exaggerated version um, of that person. So I think, uh, I think that's particularly true in music radio, but when you talk for an hour and a half, two hours longer on the podcast, I think you get the measure of somebody in terms of, I don't mean in terms of impartiality or anything like that, although, huh, yes, that is wrong. Um, <laughs> Uh, but I, you know, in terms of the things that they're the things that they're good at, the things that they're bad at, the things that they're interested in, the things that they're instinctively not interested in, um, I think all of that comes. So if there's a level of, um, if you are talking about things that people will identify with, like forgetting passwords or whatever, then I think I think that's all. I think that's all fine, um, and all part of what people enjoy listening to. And the thing about podcasts is that level of intimacy is sort of cranked up all the more. So radio is a very intimate medium anyway, but the, but podcasts make it even more so. It's like a concentrated version because it's all on demand. You know, people can stop this now or they can rewind or they can stop listening altogether, um, whether they like it or not. So I, I think that level of intimacy requires a, a certain level of intimate conversation or informality is how it seems to me. You, I, I mean, I, I've always got the impression um, that that you're a great fan of podcasts. Anyway, I mean, you 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 spun off your book one when you came away from radio too. I wonder how you find the experience of that and how the audience differs a little bit. What kind of feedback you get from that? What between podcasts and radio? Well, or? yeah, because I, I mean, the 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 book, the your podcast that you went off and did was, if I've got this right, it was pretty much entirely yours. Um, yeah, but, I mean, I did that because one of the one of the things that I was particularly hacked off with was that radio 2 had made a big investment in uh in the in the books you know the, the book club and you know a proper investment from different parts of the bbc so that this is i mean it, what tends to happen is on radio if you have a book club basically it means i'm interviewing an author yeah and it's a book we do it once a week i do it on scarlet you know i'm doing it i'm doing one tomorrow yeah. And that's fine. Any support for publishing is good. But um, the Radio 2 Book Club was a was a big deal. You know, it was a really, really big deal. And um, all publishers contributed were allowed to con offer two books a quarter. Then all the books were read by the reading, reading agency. And then there was a, a meeting of producers at Radio 2. We worked up from the long list, went to a short list and it was a proper, proper thing. And they just chucked it away. They just they just threw it away. And um and and i was so mad about that that i that i wanted to do i wanted to carry on doing a books podcast and i shall continue doing books of the year podcast because because i enjoy doing i, I enjoy doing it you know and uh publishing needs a lot of help um and i'm happy you know and i'm an author as well as a, yeah as in the podcast you know so i see it from both sides so i shall no, I shall carry on doing that as much as possible. And then when I stop doing Scarlet, well, I'll stop. I'll, that will be the only book coverage that I do. Yeah. I, I mean, before before I'm, I, I do want to talk about your book shortly, I do, I do just want to just dial back slightly to what you were talking about just in terms of interviews, which is where we started, I think, because I, I've spoken to a couple of people who are now doing interviews over Zoom rather than in going around London hotel rooms and being stuck in front of a movie star and having a publicist over your, over your shoulder just saying you've got 12 minutes or whatever it is. Um, and the general consensus seems to be that the more relaxed format is to the preference of people i'm wondering where you sit with that because you, you I, I've, I've said this to you face before so I, I don't think i'm being a sycophant here um that you've got a very natural way of just interviewing and talking to people when you're sat in the same room as them and i think that's i can't do that i think that's really quite a hard skill to get i think <clears throat> there'll be many things that change permanently uh, my as you know when life comes back to some kind of normality i think that the junket interview where we all pile into a hotel and we get 10 minutes with Ray Fiennes or whoever it is. I think <laughs> both from the actor's point of view, the production point of view, all of that has been, we've proved the fact you don't have to do that anymore. Yeah. Um, you, you know, and if you're a PR company, you don't have to hire out a whole floor of Claridge's to do this. You know, you can, you know, I can sit here, you can sit there. 
grapevines can sit against his radiator. You know, everything is uh, everything is doable, and it's a whole lot cheaper. Um, I think it's an, and I think from a, from an actor's point of view, they'll probably prefer doing them all that way, um, because unless you're Tom Hanks, chances are you don't appear to enjoy doing them very much. Yeah. Um, and I think there's an informality which which is certainly there, but I think that doesn't necessarily make it a good interview. You know, I've done some of the Zoom interviews that I've done. I can tell because I can see that the person isn't enjoying them for whatever reason. Uh, I did one a couple of weeks ago. Uh, most surprisingly, I thought, oh, well, that didn't, hmm, something was wrong there. I don't think it was anything that I said. It's just yeah. the way it was. Other people have, as your question was suggesting, they're at home, you know, they've got, they're on their own sofa, you know, yeah. they're, they're doing interviews. They are, they are definitely more relaxed. So I think, um, the, I think the chances are you might get another 10% out of the interview because the actor in question will be more relaxed or the director or whoever. Um, so that's, unless you're dealing with someone who's a technophobe, but I think the nuts and bolts of it remain the same, you know, so I've just done Paul Greengrass uh, yep. for New to the World. I think it would have been exactly the same interview face-to-face -face as it was with me here and him in his attic or wherever he was. Yeah. I don't, you know, it's still what comes out of the speaker that matters. Um, so I don't think the difference is audible. I don't think people will notice. And, and I think with, you know, Paul's a very thoughtful interviewee anyway. And I, so my hunch is, that interview would be would have been exactly the same. But you, I mean, you've got a good relationship with Paul Greengrass from previous interviews that you've done as well. I think. Did you? I mean, did you take to news the world? By the way, did you? Did you like that? Oh, I loved it. No, yeah. I loved it. I, I thought, thought it was. I thought it was. I mean, Greengrass and Hanks. Uh, although it does, I think if you watched it, I don't. If if I just if you watched it, would anyone have thought that's a Paul Greengrass movie? I don't think they. I don't think they would have done. But. Um, <clears throat> I thought it looked amazing. I do want to see it on a big, if I yeah. get a chance to see it on a big screen, that must be a huge frustration for Paul. Yeah. You know, I mean, he's worked with Netflix before, but this was a big screen movie, but he gets a great performance out of Hanks. And yeah. I forget the name of the girl, apologies. But anyway, I thought she was fantastic. Yes. The whole story was, was beautifully done. It managed to be about 1870s Texas. And of course, effortlessly all about now. So no, I thought was, I thought it was terrific. I mean, I want to watch it again, actually. What What was the last thing you saw on a big screen? I think I saw you last after you'd done the Lighthouse and Uncut Gems in the same oh. day, which was um, a nice stress-free way to spend a, a couple of hours. In terms of a stress-inducing double bill, I would suggest <laughs> to your listeners that it's not possible to get more stress in two movies for completely different reasons. I couldn't wait for the Lighthouse to finish because um, I was so stressed and Uncut James, well, it's just, yeah, that's just the start. That's just, but that was an exhaust, that was certainly an exhausting day. I honestly can't remember the last thing I saw on the big screen. Did, I mean, did you get to Tenet in the end? I'm about an episode behind on the podcast, so I don't know if that's come up. Uh, I have, I, I saw Tenet on a small screen. I, I haven't been in a cinema since lockdown. Could you explain Tenet to me? No, no, <laughs> not really. But there are some extras which do help in the explanation. So someone actually did a 3D model of the last scene of Tenet, which I, d I don't want to spoil, but I watched the 3D model of it and it, I just thought they suddenly managed to make it even more confusing. I thought that was quite something. Yeah, I mean, I do. I, I, I mean, I love Chris Nolan films. Yep, I, I do think instinctively that although it's always good, you know, a, a good film you can go back to and enjoy more, you should be able to get it first off yeah i agree you don't have to go back to watch it a second time and i think it's the first nolan i've watched all the nolan films again that's great so you can watch batman movies or interstellar yeah. and go, oh right that's good oh i, I missed that kind of new one. okay that's that, that, that's great but i think with tenet i mean we did get some emails from people who said they got it first time yeah i think they were lying um <laughs> Uh, so I, the reason why it will never be my favourite, I mean, I think it was stunning to look at and I wish I'd seen it on a big screen, etc. But I, I think it is so baffling yeah. that you absolutely need to see it a second or third time 
and for me that detracts from that kind of instant hit but the the thing i found with tenet was um the idea of doing a second viewing felt more like homework than pleasure and i think that's ultimately where, where I, I i did have the fortune of seeing it on the big screen and i was gone within 15 i was behind within 15 minutes yeah. I felt like I was doing one of those exam papers where question one's gone really badly and you never quite regain your 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 footing on it a little bit. Yeah, no, you have to go. For, I mean, you literally just have to go for the ride yeah, yeah. up as well, thinking I can't work this one out. But <laughs> wow, that looked amazing. What one, one of the further upsides of, of lockdown was, of course, Kermode and Mayer's home entertainment service, which, as you know, isn't on iPlayer. Not on iPlayer. Much loved. And not uh, back from the series, I note. Um, well, that, that's what I want to ask you about, because that, I mean, that was a show, as I've got it, that was conceived, shot and broadcast in its entirety in lockdown and then doesn't yeah. seem to have had much mention since. And I, I'm curious if we're going to see anything again. I've given up trying to work out television. You know, um, I I mean, I thought it I thought it was a very good idea. I think we did a pretty good job. Yeah. We'd have done a, a better job if we'd done a second series. Um, it was quite it was quite a thing, you know, because the lighting microphones uh, cameras everything was done by my daughter you know the the production company delivered everything because this is peak peak worry you know yeah. in lockdown one everyone was scared and we were scared and i was scared so all the kid arrives my daughter sets it up under guidance from the you know from the team we did a live yes and we did a double-headed live show with inserts and all kinds of stuff in without anyone coming into either of our homes yeah so it was an amazing achievement i think and you know i think there was some good stuff but you know tv people are weird in general and um they wear hats indoors um and uh, are to be uh, not trusted in, in my opinion so um i you know radio radio is full of sensible level-headed types for the most part um and t- TV, I, I honestly find utterly, utterly baffling. So, so never a conversation at all about. No, no one ever even vaguely mentioned that that might re- return. No, not as, no, not as far as I know. Because I, because I, 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 I seem to remember a few years ago as well. You, you did some television trial of, of you and Mark. I, th- I think you put one or two things on YouTube or something like oh, that. I just wondered if it was a, a, if that was anything at any point. I think I've always said with. with Mark and me doing television is everybody thinks it would be a really, really good idea. Yeah. Apart from anyone who's commissioning. <laughs> so we had TV producers who loved it, TV executives who funded pilots. You know, we shot this, we shot that. And everyone would be full of uh, BS. And and I was always saying, Mark always thinks I'm an Eeyore character. And that's because he seems to fall for it all. And I'm saying, <laughs> just wait you know, wait, there are just too many people. Well, I'm not sure, you know, and hey, presto, nothing happens. That doesn't make sense. Hey, presto, (laughs) hey, presto indicates that something should happen. No. So were we surprised that nothing happened? No, I wasn't at all surprised. So I think, you know, uh, and who would who would put us on the television now? Well, you know, we were surprised to get on at all. Um, It takes a lockdown and a world health crisis Kermit and Mayo to make it onto the television just just for the one series um, that's still not on iPlayer yeah <laughs> absolutely still not on iPlayer. um I I did I, I mean turning to I mean you've you've had a very productive 12 12 months in terms of the projects that you've had that have been realized uh, not least the television series itch uh having a book published as, as well your first thriller I wonder if I can just go back first though to mad blood stirring and, and just yeah. find out where that got up to because I I had a long conversation with you once and where you said that Tessa Ross, I think it was, had bought the film rights off four pages of that. And then I think you went off and did some work with Jack Thorne. I just wonder if you can pick that story up. Yeah, so Mad Blood Stirring was um, a book I did before last, which is based in Dartmoor Prison, uh, the tail end of 1814 and beginning of 1815, and based on a true story um, of the what I believe to be the first ever black Shakespeare in Britain produced by an extraordinary character called King Dick, who was a prisoner um, at Dartmoor Prison. The story ends with the Dartmoor Massacre, which happened in I think it's April 1815. Um, 
anyway, uh, it, was an, it was an astonishing true story and I was trying to do the best job that I could with that. Um, and you're right, Tessa Ross bought the, the, the screen rights for that. And Jack, was, Jack wrote a screenplay, which was great. They are working on, I'm just, I, I don't know how much, <laughs> I don't know how much of this is, is out there. Anyway, there is a director who's been lined up. There's a different screenwriter um, lined up and, and is working uh, on it. Um, and I so, so the project is, is still going and they seem very confident. Um, I mean, for, for me, I would think, you know, there are some movies that are getting commissioned. My movie will have to be about an overcrowded prison. That strikes me slightly more complicated um, than uh, than most. But if anyone can make it happen, Tessa and Juliet will do it. Um, and, Juliet, sorry. Uh, yes, Juliet Howell and Tessa Ross, who run House yep. Productions, and uh, it's you know it's their gig. So I I still it's still it's still in the works. These things take forever. Yeah. Uh, which is a huge frustration if you're a radio person where you kind of think of an idea and then you want to do it the next day. Um, but anyway, so I think Mad Blood Stirring is still is still in the pipeline and the producers are still pretty confident. That, you know, the, 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 the director and the screenwriter are top notch. So I Spielberg would, and Aaron Sorkin. If, if that were the case, I wouldn't have been able to not tell you precisely that but um uh that would that would be that would be interesting but that happens to be not the case i can eliminate them from this well well i've got quite a list to go through then let's let's work <laughs> um you hinted i i think it was rand um when one of the avengers films came around that you were you were working with jack thorne at that point and working side by side with him was the implication i got because you were having screenwriting chats about how many characters an avengers film can juggle and what an achievement that is i wonder how close you came to the screenwriting process yourself and you know what what you picked up and what you learned from that well i mean i, I would Okay, sometimes I do think I'd like to write um, a screenplay and then I just think my life is too crowded. And, but when you talk to Jack, who, um, who's such a great uh, screenwriter and a great all-round bloke, that I think as a result of that, then decided to, I mean, I decided to sort of step away and let other people do it. Because if you want a top-notch screenwriter, you have to let them do it. And I think if the deal had been, you need to co-write with me, Simon Mayer, then I think they'd have gone, no, I don't think so. So I, uh, you know, I've talked to the team behind the HTV series, which is on iPlayer. Is it? Recommend. Yeah, that is on iPlayer. Um, and they just finished filming the second series in Perth or roundabout Perth, Western Australia. Um, so I imagine that'll be that'll be turning up, and um, you know I've talked occasionally. I have conversations with their producers about writing a screenplay, but I think in general I'm spread thinly enough, and um, I think I think it comes up because, and the reason I'm interested in doing it uh, is because I like writing dialogue, and a lot of my books are dialogue heavy, yeah. and. Obviously, that's what most, an awful lot of a screenplay is. And so I am intrigued about the prospect. But while I still keep doing these radio programs, I just can't see the time, you know. If I had a month off without anything, I would, I'd be intrigued to write a screenplay. But I don't, I don't think it's going to happen. There's, there's an old cliche, though, that it's the busy people who fit the most in. That if you're if you're working in an office and there's someone who's like really busy and there's someone who doesn't do very much at all and you've got a job to give, give it to the busy person who doesn't look like they'd have the capacity to do it because they're more likely to do it. That that, mm. that that was presented to me once at a not very good management course. Um, but I, I, would you because it struck me, I think the first time I did an interview with you, you just written itch and you didn't think at one point that you would ever do a book. I mean, that's why I'm, I'm curious, particularly about the question. And then one day you sat down and just started writing. You wrote, wrote it for your child. Um, and I think you concluded in the end, you'd written it almost about you. 
Um, but do you not sense that that might, is, will there not be a moment where you just sit with a laptop and just say, oh, do you know what, I'm just going to give it a go? Who knows? I mean, who knows? I mean, the thing is at the moment, I, uh, it's about Headspace and I finished Scala in two weeks. I start a new drive time show in a month. Yep. I'm about a year behind on the new novel. Um, and if, if I start getting distracted by writing a screenplay, which is very tempting, you know, I, I, and I would be intrigued to do it, then I'm going to fall behind even more. Yeah. Uh, on it. So I've even started, I've even written a couple of songs. How about that? You know, so uh, I need to, fo I need to get slightly more focused and get on top of this new novel, which I'm hoping I'll be able to do when I change my working shift so that I can write in the morning and do the radio in the afternoon, which was all, which has always worked best for me in the past. I think I think the logical thing for you to write is a musical by the sounds of it. <laughs> if you've written the songs and you want to try the screenplay, that blends them all together. One of, one of the things I really, really, if Mad Blood becomes a movie, yeah. one of the things I really, really hope is that music is at the heart of it because Dartmoor Prison was overwhelmingly white, but there was one prison because uh, it was all divided into different blocks, bl seven blocks. Block four was exclusively black. It was the only time that was has been a racially segregated prison uh, in the UK. So prisons one to three and five to seven were white. And they would have had the musical traditions of sailors around the world. So there'd have been all the, uh, the shanties and the work songs. But prison four had a choir and all the people, including the white sailors who heard the choir, all said how astonishing it was. And my, I, I believe that that's the first time that gospel music is heard in the UK. Uh, and I ran this past the guy who uh, set up the London Community Gospel Choir. And he said, I think you're right. So um, I think that if Mab, you know, music is part of my, I listen to music all the time. It's it's just just sort of out of reach. But if we can get to the movie, uh, and they get the music right, I think it will be something something special because we'd never heard what were called and still are officially called Negro spirituals. They hadn't been heard here before. So if they can get that right, it would be astonishing. So is it, movie is it, is, I mean, is it the old thing with a, with a movie and with itch though, that, um, that, that you've written it and then you take a step back, you're not involved in any producing capacity or anything on those? Do you, yeah, do I mean, this, I still, you know, I still get asked questions and, and there's still, you know, there's, there's a level of involvement, but it, essentially it's over, it's over to them. You know, the producers can produce, the director can direct and the screenwriter can go, that's fine. You know, I, I would, I will love to be involved in some way, but not officially, you know, I'm happy to let them. I'm happy to, you know, to let them run it. I just feel as though, and I know the producers think this anyway, because they've, because they've said it, but um, there's music running through the whole thing. And I would love it to be, I would love that to have some kind of presence in the film. I, th I, I think your role at the end of it can be to review it as well. I mean, that, that's well, going to be an interesting one that comes up. Yeah. I've always, I've always thought that would be great fun to, um, <laughs> Five stars, yeah. to get, to wait for Mark to, to review the film, to stand down, I'll have to leave the presenter's chair to hand over to Sanjeev or someone like that. And then I'll stand behind Kermode and poking with a pen, depending on what he says. But hey, that one you, day, You've mate. planned this moment, have you? I, 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 I seem to remember there was a moment, was it your daughter who had a movie out? And, and you sort of- She had... was, yeah, she had a small part in a movie, yeah. Yeah, I, 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 I can't remember what the review of that turned out like, but um, w w was there any pre-prodding there? No, there was no, there wasn't actually, because it was. <laughs> no, there wasn't. I mean, Mark quite liked it, as I recall. Um, yeah, it's still on IMDb somewhere, but uh, not on iPlayer though. Definitely not on. IPlayer. Not on iPlayer. No, just itch on iPlayer. Um, well, I mean, if we can just quickly touch on itch, and then I just want to get to Knife Edge before we round up, if that's okay. But um, how have you found that? I mean, the. the it strikes me as quite surreal that something you sat writing on a laptop on your kitchen table or whatever, that mm. then you're in Australia watching it being filmed and then it, it's visualised. And I just wonder if you can just almost get to the human being of that, what it's like to watch that process and how you feel about it. <laughs> well, it's very, it's definitely very, very strange. Um, the day before they started filming, I was there for, uh, when I flew out, it was just the day before the, that they started. And this is in Albany in Western Australia. 
and walking across the beach to meet the the kids because they were basically kids who were playing the main characters um was weird uh meeting sam ireland who's the actor who was playing itch was very strange because partly partly you think this you came out of my head yeah you know, i i invent i invented this um and then when the when the tv producers come up with other characters or they change the story i'm thinking what are you doing this is you can't change it this is my story of course they're telling a story on television so it has a different set of requirements um and then the first the first scene that they recorded was at the end of a jetty a very very beautiful beach in uh, in albany and it's itch and his sister chloe um having a conversation and i wrote it downstairs in this house at the kitchen table um in london and here we are the other side of, literally the other side of the world with headphones on sweltering watching these two kids play the part in this against a beautiful blue sea so but um, uh, but saying my words the words actually hadn't changed very much if at all um so that's a you know that's a thrill uh, you know what can i what can i say i mean they quite what they made of me flying the other you know from one side of the world to the other just to just to meet them and hang out and get in the way uh, i don't know but it was a terrific experience and i wouldn't you know, I wouldn't have missed it uh, at all because who knows if that'll ever happen again. But the what the one thing that I'd said to them was, the guiding principle behind the whole thing must be that Itch is an element hunter. He collects the periodic table, and the periodic table gives him a sense of meaning yeah. and place. He has a very disruptive, and um, his his family life is a little bit chaotic. But he looks at the periodic table, and that for him is like a religious icon. That's where he gets his sense of place and. Because years and years ago, there'd been talk of it being slightly kind of more mystical, you know, and I said, absolutely not. The magic is science. The magic is real. Um, if they add this element to that element and that chemical and so on, the, the reaction that you see on screen has to be what actually happened. So I think by and large, they stuck with that. I mean, if, if you, if you I, I wonder if you look at the work things that you've done, that I, I mean, it, it sounds dramatic to say it changed your life, but I just wonder how you feel about that first book now, because it's taken you off down what strikes me as a path of some extraordinary adventures. Yeah. I mean, I'm still amazed. I, I'm still amazed it happened at all. But it's, you know, I, but it was, it's great. You know, it's, it's, it's great. I mean, I, um, I didn't, I, I there's a guy called Jimmy Melville who runs Hattrick Productions. And yep. in the nineties, I worked with him a bit when Confessions was a TV show and we stayed in touch a bit. And he, he said to me, your fifties will, uh, for a lot of people, your fifties are your most creative decade. And just before my 60th birthday, I sent him a message. I just said, years ago, you told me that your fifties are your most creative decade. And I'm just leaving my 50th decade. And so I just thought I'd send you a message saying that you were right. And he said, he just replied saying, I think you'll find the next decade is pretty good too. But I think I had, you know, I, I had no desires, no intention to write a book at all until I thought I'd write um, my son this story. And then the short story became a longer story. And I printed it off. I had my own, you know, I didn't have a contract. I didn't have an agent, didn't have anything. But I handed these sheets of A4 to Joe and then he enjoyed it and then it all you know it all took off from there so the whole thing was surreal uh I'm glad I started down that yeah down that line because it's it's given me a whole different I think the phrase is side hustle <laughs> that, that makes sense yeah so I've got a side hustle that's sort of thing I'm writing novels well, and your latest which was resident at the point it was opening my local Asda for weeks which is no small feat um, given the small amount of books my local Asda has, um, took you again on, um, on on a turn and a half, really, into thriller territory. I really enjoyed Knife Edge. Um, and I, 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 I appreciate you've talked about a, a little bit about this before. Um, you, you gave interviews at the time about feeling a little bit of imposter syndrome going into Always. writing a thriller, but Always. that was a good thing. Um, how, have you, how have you felt about the response to that book and what's that kind of fueled you to do next? The imposter syndrome will never go away. I, 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 and I do think that's, that's a good thing. I'm sure yep. the only people who don't have imposter syndrome are precisely the people who should. <laughs> um, but yeah. um, 
I think on the thriller, I mean, it was marketed as a debut thriller. Debut anything is always more exciting. I mean, I think I've always written thrillers. I think the itch books are thrillers. Well, Blame um, was too. Blame was a thriller. Mad Blood, I mean, it's slightly different because it was historical fiction and structured in a way that reflected the Romeo and Juliet play that it's based on. So that was slightly, that was slightly different. So I think I write thrillers. I just think that's what I do. And the response, uh, the response to it was, was very, you know, was very pleasing, you know, so you get, you know, a whole bunch of good reviews and Lee Child loved it. And, uh, you know, and he's the guy, you know, he's the man. Yeah. If you can, if you can get a decent review out of Lee Child, then, um, then that's fantastic. And I, he, he had said, I should do your podcast, but I'll host it and you can be, and I can interview you. And I never thought for a single moment that that would happen, but that is exactly what did happen. And when Knife Edge came out, the, the podcast is hosted by Lee Child yep. from his ranch in Montana, wherever it is, Wyoming, whatever. Um, and I'm the guest on my own podcast, which was fantastic. I loved it. You know, great. I mean, it would be remiss of me not to point out the 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 several wittertainment uh, Easter eggs in the book. I mean, I I I, I spotted. A, I mean, I think my, my favourite passage in there was um, the, the the conversation that takes place fairly early in. Always wondered how you report the news when you are the news, and the answer is you just report the news. But you fuse these right through your books, haven't you? I mean, quite a few characters are fairly close to fans of the show. I don't, I, I don't plan it to be like that. <laughs> but when, so that's Femi, he's the main character yep. in, in Knife Edge. She's just been, she's a, she works for a press agency and she's just been in charge of the kind of UK output reporting uh, a terrible sort of terrorist attack. And, uh, and it's her fellow journalists who have been, who've been killed. So, it just it just kind of emerged as part of the conversation. And when I wrote it, I thought, you know, I wasn't sure about the line precisely because it would take people out of the newsroom and into entertainment. So, um, I mean, it's still there. And some people have highlighted it and makes them laugh, you know, which is fine. You know, I mean, I, I don't set out to put in the Easter eggs. It's just that there's a certain way of talking, which I think is familiar to the fans of the show. One, I don't want to go spoiler on the book, so I just want to ask a question near the start of it. Apart from the fact that I think we need more thrillers in the West Midlands, because that, that appeals to me particularly. Yeah, yeah. yeah and, and it appeared to Lee, appealed, and I'd forgotten that Lee Child yep. uh, was brought up in Coventry, so yep. there's a whole that section of the book which is in Coventry, so he, so he really liked that, yeah. I think I think yeah I think it's Knife Edge and the film The Hitman's Bodyguard are the only things set in Coventry in the last couple right. of years I think, um, but the the start of the book I just wonder if you can talk about getting the pacing of that because I'm I mean it, it I mean it's re really 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 tight it's a, a hugely arresting opening to it and I just wonder if that kind of stuff comes very very natural to you um, again going back to kind of the tempo of, of the way your head works a little bit I guess um, or if that's something that's just edited to death just to get it to that point well, it wasn't really edited that much I mean so in the opening so on the first page there are seven murders mm. Um, and then Femi goes to work and then pretty soon after she arrives from work, the reporting comes in of these seven different murders in different places in London. Uh, and then the realisation that actually they all work for the for the press agency as well, the news agency. And um, I think it's if it works, then it works because I think that's the it's kind of a nod to the fact that I spent nearly 10 years in the five live newsroom yeah and and when you've worked on a news program when you've done breaking news when you've been a part of that um of that scenario where there's a breaking story you're not really quite sure what the story is so you're everyone's working to one thing they're just trying to work out what's happened why has it happened who can we get to tell us about the story um and there's a kind of a free song that happens uh, I mean, a radio newsroom is different to the newsroom that I described in yeah. uh, in the book, but the basic deal is the same. It was a breaking news story. And I think there's an energy which comes from being in a newsroom and being in, in my case, it was being in a studio. The most extreme example of which was 9-11, which I was yeah. on air for. But when you've had that kind of chaotic 
experience with news coming in on the wires and on television and on reporters. I was just trying to get a handle really on that um, and trying get the sense of what it would be like to be in a newsroom when there's a breaking news story. So that, I don't, if my memory is right, I don't think it's edited very much. I think that's pretty much just the way I wrote it. Yeah. And are you, again, I'm, without wishing to spoil where, where the book goes, are you able to say if there's a, a continuation, if there's more adventures with one or two of the characters uh, in the future? I mean, I'd, I, I mean, I'd like there, I'd, I'd like there to be, I'd like there to be. We'll have, we'll have to see. I think, um, I always think that when I finished a book that I would like to write a continuation, you know. I felt the same at the end of Mad Blood. I felt the end, the same at the end of Blame, yeah. at the end of the third Itch book. I wanted to do a fourth. Uh, you know, I'm still tempted to do a fourth Itch book. And maybe, you know, maybe, maybe that's, that should happen. But I think three, it was a natural break. But ultimately, this is market driven. And if yeah. enough people buy a book, people will want you to do another one. Um, and if Mad Blood becomes a film, then maybe there's a follow on to that. And if Knife Edge, you know, the screen rights have been sold to that, you know, and if that happens, then maybe maybe there's some more uh, to be had. But at the moment, I'm trying to get this, I'm trying to get this other uh, thriller away. Um, but Femi Madden, who's the star of Knife Edge, really, I enjoyed spending time with her. Sounds really weird, I know. Um, but I liked, I liked her, so maybe there's some more to be had there. I think, I think it's Don Winslow who's ultimately published a book of short stories, to, uh, just rounding up threads from lots of his other books that he didn't have time to do a follow-up well, to, that, mate. That's, that's <laughs> so a good idea. I can't imagine Transworld going for that, but still I'll suggest. It's worth a try. It's worth yeah. a try. You said, the, you said in the midst there that the screen rights to Knife Edge have been snapped up. Is there yeah. anything you can say there? Well, Is well, that Spielberg I mean, and Sorkin? Yeah, that's that. <laughs> yeah, that's the one. That's the one. Uh, no, I mean it's the same. It's the same people who, who did it um, have have bought have bought this, um, and you know, and that and that's very exciting because they've proved the fact that they can actually make these TV yeah. programs happen uh, and work. And yeah, I mean, I I didn't write. I write it. I wrote, I only wrote it to be a novel. I didn't write it to be a screenplay. I didn't write it to be a movie. But if it turns up on turns up on television, then that's um, then that's great. But and, yeah. And the next book that you're a year behind on is a is an unrelated thriller. Is that right? Yes, yes, it is. <laughs> yes, it's entirely un unrelated, but uh, deeply painful. <laughs> I'm in the section where. Um, all the heavy lifting for a book is is the middle third. Yeah, I mean, the, which is which is the way it should be. So the opening, if you've got a good idea, you go in all guns blazing, uh, literally in knife edge. But you go, um, you charge in, and the energy and the momentum takes you to thirty thousand words. Then hopefully, by the time you get to the final thirty, you're all fired up by the logic of what you've written. Um, it's just that middle 30 that's a real pain and that's where and that's where I am I, I think uh, you said with blame you, you got to a halfway point and there's something that happens again I don't want to spoil in the middle of blame and you just felt you could breathe out at that point where the character's location changed significantly oh uh, yeah plus also what happened in the middle of blame is I went off and wrote the movie doctors with, with Mark <laughs> so that <laughs> which meant that there was a huge kind of stylistic kind of break uh, in the middle but and I found this Covid year has been you know, I'm not that far on in this new book from where I was a year ago yeah um, so almost the last time I was allowed out went to a wine bar with my editor and we had a really good conversation about the book and where I thought it was heading and he sort of gave me the green light and since then I've written about a hundred words I think <laughs> so and songs and a couple of songs. I mean, where did that come from? I mean, that's that's crazy business, really. You follow the spark. That's that's the trick, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. 
Um, if, I, if I can just squeeze in two quick questions before our time's up, um, I, I, it would be remiss of me not to uh, mention your effectively your return home. You mentioned it at the start, but you're heading back to drive time radio. Yes. And I get the impression from the way you've tweeted about this. You're hugely excited about that. Is it, it, well, Does it feel like a homecoming to you? Yeah, I mean, if. I mean, yes and no. I mean, it's not going to be, the, it's obviously not going to be the same. This is going to be on Greatest Hits Radio, which is another station which is owned by Bauer, who also owns Scarlet. So this was their idea. And and when they mentioned it, I just thought it was a, I just thought instinctively, yes. Yeah. That for reasons that I don't need to go over again, but um, I have some unfinished, I do feel as though unfinished business is the best way to describe it, you know. Um, and I feel as though I have a, a few years of drive time in me. Still, it was a it was a time slot that suited me really well. I loved the show. It was the happiest I've ever been doing a radio show um, like that. And so the chance to go back and just do it again, hopefully, will be very exciting. I mean, st- it'll be a different it'll be a different show. Greatest Hits Radio is not Radio Two. You know, yeah. they play old. It's a classic hits format. Seventies, eighties, and nineties. That's what they do. It'll be great, um, I think. Uh, technically, I won't be here. I'll be in their studio, and we'll, you know, we'll see what happens. But I, th- you know, there's a lot of goodwill out there because there are a lot of people. They write letters to the Radio Times every week for about a year, yeah, saying what's going on, why is this happening, you know. So, and I think it's because, you know, these things are always very difficult to judge. But when things have run their natural lifespan that's the time to make a change yeah and things were interrupted too early so people felt that and i felt that so i've got a chance to go back and finish it off properly oh i wish you the best with that um now i i if i can end by i i had mark kermode on this podcast a, a few weeks ago and he was talking about the future of wittertainment and where and where that would go and he said it's entirely up to you that, in fact, it's interesting what you've just said about you know when things have an end and when that when there's yeah. unfinished business. He said you will know the exact time when it's time to end that. I just wonder if you can assure us that's not going to be for a while yet. Yeah, well, yeah, it's not going to be for a while yet. I, I think, I mean, every, everything, I think other people have exactly the same version of this conversation. Everything feels up in the air. Everything yeah. feels, to mix the metaphor, it's like we've been on pause for a year and... The movie show that we're doing at the moment isn't really the movie show that we want to do because we want to do the two-hour show. We want it to be in the studio, but it's not. So I have no idea how long we'll do it for, but nothing is about nothing is about to change. I mean, I started last year thinking I will do less radio and more writing. That's what I wanted to do. And then um, with, with, with COVID, that looks like a ludicrous career choice. You know, the radio has been nimble, um, the radio work has continued. I haven't missed a show. Uh, and radio is the solid, reliable banker. And movies, television, writing, that all seems a little bit up in the air. You know, the bookshops closed. The cinemas closed. The radios are on. Yeah. The radio, you know, there is nothing that's interrupted that at all. So, um, yeah, I have no great insight as to how long we'll go on for, but but we're doing, you know, we're doing fine. Got a great review from Chilean Reynolds in the, saw that. In, the in the Sunday Times, so that's good. And you know, um, we'll, you know, we'll carry, you know, we'll carry on. Well, long may that ship sail. And Simon Mayer, this has been an absolute delight talking to you. Thank you so much for your time, and best luck with your musical, with your Steven Spielberg directed film. I think we've got through quite <laughs> quite a lot here yeah. with the new radio I mean, show. To have Aaron Sorkin and Steven Spielberg on one. On one film. I've, I don't know how I've kept that quiet for so long. Well, it, it's a talent. It's a talent. <laughs> Thank you yeah, very Thomas much. Newman, Thomas Newman's agreed to do the soundtrack just now. I just got a little email from him. Well, yeah, he's in the background there. I see him. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's going to that's gonna be a turn up for the books, I think. Well, I shall see you on Oscar night. It will be a great night. <laughs> All right. Thank you. Take Thanks care. Thank you. Sure. You can be my plus one. Oh, lovely. I'm there. I've got a tux. I'll have a wash and everything.
And that brings us to the end of my conversation with Simon Mayo. His new book, Knife Edge, is on paper is in paperback from the 4th of March. Wittertainment continues each week on BBC Radio 5 Live, 5 Alive, Radio 5, whatever it's been called this week. Wittertainment can be found there. No sign of Kermit and Mayo's home entertainment service on iPlayer at the moment, though. Also touched upon in that podcast, uh, Simon's book, Mad, Blooks, Mad Blood Stirring, is available now. The Movie Doctors is the book that he co-wrote with Mark Kermode that's also available now in fact there's a lot of books available now Itch is on BBC iPlayer if you want to see that and there are three books for sale as well I think that's a good time to wrap up you can get more of my witterings at Simon Brew on Twitter you can find more at the Film Stories website filmstories.co.uk if you go to store.filmstories.co.uk you can find well all, all of the back issues of our magazine including the current issues of our magazines as well or on Facebook facebook.com slash filmstoriesonline YouTube at youtube.com slash filmstories I'll be back soon though with the regular episode of Film Stories comes around every Monday uh, until then thanks as always for listening thanks for your time you all take care and I'll be back soon take care bye bye head over to Hulu this March where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long Catch the acclaimed movie, All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu.